imagine Amazon has the list of uh, the top 100 products that are sold in India every day, right? Without who bought them, without any other information, just a pure list. That is an example of non-personal data. And the government's been saying is that for certain kinds of non-personal data, there should be mandatory sharing. Let's just take that earlier example. Now, let's just imagine that alongside those top 100 products, we also know the PIN codes to which they are delivered. Does the fact that a particular PIN code is buying more books of, that are critical of the government than other PIN codes mean something about the people who live in those localities on the ground? And does that mean that the government should surveil them more? This is Season 2 of Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. Listen to founders, tech policy experts, and pioneers in impact investing, all sharing their relationship with data. So hello and welcome. Today we have Utpav uh, Tiwari with us and he is the public policy advisor at Mozilla. Hi Utpav, how are you? Hi Diksha, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. And actually, you are in India right now, but soon you'll be moving to Berlin, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a couple of weeks from now. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So we'll have you here then. So, uh, you know, actually, it's interesting because you are our third speaker from Mozilla. Before this, we've had um, two Mozilla fellows, Anouk and Yulia, and we've discussed their projects. And it's very um, interesting that now we have somebody from the Mozilla team itself. And we can ask all questions about, okay, what Mozilla is all about and why do you do what you do and Mozilla's role basically in the ecosystem. So why don't we just begin with that? So tell us about what you as Udbhav do at Mozilla and what is this entire uh, manifesto about, you know, building a healthy internet and uh, basically also Mozilla's voice out there in the ecosystem? So uh, Mozilla is a pretty, I would say, unique player in the internet ecosystem because Mozilla is, uh, of course, there is the corporation and I work in the corporation's global public policy team and I'm happy to talk about that in a bit. But uh, Mozilla is a non-for-profit corporation. So what that means is that the corporation is actually owned by the foundation, the Mozilla Foundation. And the foundation and the corporation together have, like you mentioned, uh, a public document called the Mozilla Manifesto that guides all our actions. Um, and what we really think sets Mozilla apart from many other players in this space is that all of our work is explicitly towards treating the internet as a global public resource that should be accessible to everyone. Um, and the different ways in which we do this are our products. So for many folks would have heard about the Firefox web browser, uh, and that's now been around for just a little, I would say, over 20 years uh, in the space and has had some really interesting, I think, a role in the internet ecosystem right since the days of the Internet Explorer, but even right now to keep a open sort of standards-based web available and accessible to as many people as possible. Um, but also other products like Pocket, uh, which is an app that lets you save articles uh, to be able to read them later and also recommends some interesting articles from around the internet, which is a separate app, but also has certain features that are available within the Firefox browser. And we also have uh, the Mozilla VPN, which is a VPN service that lets you access the internet safely and securely 
um, in a couple of countries around the world, and that list is gradually expanding. Um, and in that way, all of these organizations, all of these products are run by within Mozilla, like they run in any other technology company, really, like their engineers who work on them. Um, and my role in the global public policy team is really to also uh, look out for laws and regulations that may impact these products, Defend, like if they can be improved to make sure that they don't, that they lead to that open internet that we talk about within Mozilla, then to advocate for those. Or if there are particularly worrying things in certain laws and regulations, it would be bad, not just for Mozilla's products, but also for the internet. I also tend to work on those issues. And so far, if my remit has largely been in the Asia Pacific region, where I'm, and I, but I also work on some other issues globally. And the issue, the kind of issues that I usually work on are things like data protection and privacy, content regulation and intermediary liability, connectivity, um, encryption and, and security. Um, and depending on where things are happening in the world and where Mozilla decides to strategically engage, I sort of engage on those issues, on one of these issues in, in different jurisdictions. Um, but before sort of closing off, one of the things that really does set Mozilla apart is also the Mozilla Foundation. Now, um, you'd mentioned uh, earlier that both Anouk and Yulia were also like have been a part of this podcast before. And now both of them were Mozilla Fellows and uh, Fellows are usually appointed by the Foundation. So the Foundation um, is actually a digital rights NGO, right? It um, has Fellows that work on internet health and internet security around the world. It has um, uh, like a very strong advocacy team that works on bringing attention to different projects uh, and different initiatives um, by forcing sometimes governments and sometimes companies to think better about their users so that their privacy and their security can be respected. Um, you may have heard of this campaign called YouTube Regrets, which the foundation ran earlier this year, which was fundamentally about using um, data donations uh, of YouTube watch history from different users around the world to see how the YouTube algorithm works. Um, there's also another very famous guide called Privacy Not Included, which in fact this year's edition just came out, which is uh, sort of like a guide that rates products, but on their privacy and security characteristics and features and, and how secure they are. Um, and apart from these initiatives, the foundation also has a pretty active like global programs and awards team. So they give out grants to interesting initiatives around the world that are working on internet health, but also uh, do research under the insights team in the foundation on some areas like data stewardship and data governance in general under the broader umbrella of the Data Futures Lab. So that's just an overview of both what Mozilla is, what the role the foundation plays, as well as my space in the ecosystem. Okay. So actually, I'm like a very loyal reader of Mozilla newsletter, and I really look forward to it. And what I really like about it is that, um, you know, with the kind of openness, the stories are written. So it's like music to a journalist's uh, ears, you know, the way you uh, write content. And I, th I think that brings me to the next um, question is that, uh, you know, data regulation is a big part of how any movement can actually happen in the internet world, in Web2 precisely. And we have in the past spoken about GDPR, EU regulations, also the impact that EU regulations have on US. But till now, we haven't really had anybody speak to us about, okay, what's happening in Asia Pacific? Like, what's 
the status of data regulations again uh, not i wouldn't say against but data regulations uh, that protect the rights of internet users and probably you could give us a sense of that and then we could zoom into you know uh India as well, which is 1.2 billion people. And we really want to know that, you know, what's happening there with data rights and on all that precious user data. So uh, I'm happy to give like a short overview of just generally what's happening in the region first as well. Um, where, I mean, I think that uh, both in Europe as well, in certain parts of the world, data protection has been around for quite some time, right? Like GDPR, of course, is the latest iteration of a data protection law, but Europe has had a data protection law for much longer than that in the past mm. as well. Uh, but here in the Asia-Pacific region, it's quite far from being the norm to even have a data protection law in the first place. Uh, if one were to turn the clock back, I would say even 10 years ago, uh, one could easily, I think, count on two hands the number of countries in the Asia-Pacific region who had a dedicated data protection law on the books. Um, but thanks to the proliferation of technology and uh, general demands from civil society to like want better protections for users and consumers, um, that that's changing. And uh, if one could just start off, like I think Australia has had a privacy law for a fair for a fair amount of time, but the um, ACCC uh, and the Privacy Commissioner in Australia are actually in the midst of re-looking at their privacy law. It's being uh, updated to better suit modern technologies. Um, if one were to move a little higher up, uh, countries like Philippines have now had a privacy law for some time. And in fact, business imperatives around uh, the business processing and outsourcing industry that exists in the Philippines played a very big role in the Philippines even having a, a privacy law in the first place. And there uh, like outreach and the functioning of their sort of data protection commissioners has been something that many governments in the region have looked at um, as whether there are models that they could implement um, domestically in their countries as well. Um, Sri Lanka uh, is also looking at a data protection law. Uh, I believe that the law has passed and in fact the first proper text of the law that would be available I think just very recently was available on official government websites as well as the law that will uh, like very soon be binding. Um, it hasn't come into force yet, but it has like the mm -hmm. text and the final, uh, like the final version of the law is now available for individuals to see. Um, and even countries like Indonesia have been like debating data protection laws for some time. And uh, Indonesia also now has a data protection law, but there are some provisions within the law that either still need to be notified or certain like regulatory entities under the law need to be set up. So as you can see from like just this smattering of examples, and I'll get to India in a bit, um, uh, that most countries in the region are actually now looking at a data protection law, but there are different stages of that data protection law actually becoming binding and applicable on citizens. They're either uh, rejigging their laws to bring them into the modern age so that they can they re react better to technology or um, they're still in the process of consultations or like are just about to introduce the law into the parliament or it's been passed but hasn't been brought into force yet. Um, and that's pretty much where things are in India as well. Even in India, the conversation around data protection has been going on for well over, I think, 12 years now, approximately. There have been different versions of different bills that different committees have proposed. Uh, but finally, the version of uh, India's data protection law that was proposed by something called the Justice Sri Krishna Committee in 2018 has now finally um, 
been deliberated upon by a joint parliamentary committee in the Indian parliament. So now this committee has made a bunch of suggestions around what the law should be like and has will propose these suggestions to the government in the session of parliament that's actually starting next week uh, on the 29th of November onwards. So, uh, and it's going to last for about two to three weeks approximately. And like in those three weeks, people expect both to see the next, like the text of changes the committee has recommended, but also the law um, and, and the report of that parliamentary committee as well, which is why like from news reports is contain some like quite some swingers in terms of just the kind of uh, some of the changes that have been mentioned, say, for social media platforms, for non-personal data regulation, all of which don't really have too much to do with pure play, privacy and data protection, but uh, are being possibly included in the law um, anyway. So once that happens, India is also expected uh, to pass its data protection law most likely sometime early next year. Uh, like I would say maybe the first half of 2022 to give us a range, but most likely like late first quarter, early second quarter, 2022 is when the law itself is supposed to pass. So yeah, that's a short one. So what are actually, what's the uh, content of this law? I mean, what are what are the things that will come, uh, maybe the top three or four important things, you know, that this law entails? And um, probably it's a part already of what you will answer, but I also saw some of your interviews where you're talking about non-personal data and it seems that the government has made some rules around that also. So also, I mean, it's not really a term that I understand very well when you say non-personal data. So if you could explain uh, what non-personal data is and what is actually the regulation around it that India is working on or has already worked on. Um, I mean, I would say uh, I'm happy to do the first question, mm-hmm. uh, which is the like, what are the big things in the law? Because one of the big things that possibly will be in the law is non-personal data. And then I just use awesome. that as way to explain non-personal data as well. Um, so the law, I would say from um, like, I'm, and one must acknowledge that at this point, some of these are rumors because there is credible media reporting around it, but no one's actually, you know, like the report itself of the parliamentary committee has not been formally put in the public domain. Um, so, um, which is why when I'm talking about issues, I'll flag them as like, whether, you know, whether they're actually, they've been in the law throughout or whether it'll be likely that they will be introduced in the new version now. Uh, but I would say there are like two very big, uh, like maybe three, let's say issues within, uh, the data protection bill that have always been a part of the law. Um, the first fundamental provision is that around data protection, um, and how it applies to governments. So the law in India currently has a section, the draft law, uh, section 35, which will allow the government to exempt any part of itself from any part of the law. Uh, as you can imagine, some of the biggest issues uh, around data protection uh, in India, like such as the debate around the Aadhaar, which is the India's digital identity project, but also many other things have actually been about the role that the government plays with the data of Indian residents um, on the ground. Um, and there have been some pretty uh, strong sort of calls from civil society that the law at a minimum should apply as much to the government as it does to private players and private entities. Um, everybody understands the need for exceptions, say for national security, for law enforcement access, and all laws around the world contain it, like the GDPR contains some of these exceptions as well. But the government, uh, many people think is like, Uh, significantly sort of exceeded that narrow scope and has just given itself the complete executive power uh, where it just needs to give a little bit of reasoning. But apart from that, it can 
just ish like say hypothetically these 15 sections will not apply to the Reserve Bank of India. These five sections won't apply to VUIDAI, which is India's Digital Identity Authority. Uh, or the whole law will not apply to the Intelligence Bureau. Or the whole law will not apply to the, say, CBI, which is India's like uh, centralized mm. investigation agency. Um, and that's something that has many people concerned because... Um, of course, the law is in many ways pretty strong on private players, right? Like, in fact, when we wrote about this latest draft that when it came out in 2019, uh, our title was strong on companies and weak on government, right? Like, and to that extent, uh, there is definitely far better protections available even in the current draft that we've seen than what are on the books in India today. So in that way, is it an improvement? Unequivocally so. But um, the fact that the government can choose to not apply whatever parts of the law it wants, not after, you know, an independent commission, not after somebody, uh, not after a court says that it can do so, but like whenever it wants as an executive um, is a pretty worrying uh, provision. Uh, the second provision is in general around the independence of the Data Protection Authority uh, that this law is proposing. So as you can imagine, the Data Protection Authority is the regulator that enforces data protection laws. They are the ones you can complain to if something goes wrong with you and a data collector. Uh, but there are also individuals who do proactive audits, who enforce the provisions of the law. And if you don't really have a strong data protection authority, then like the law actually becomes a toothless tiger when it comes to data protection, because you can't do anything unless there is you know, a capable infrastructure of people who can enforce that law. And we've already seen... Um, some calls from even, say, European civil society that that's also what's happening with the GDPR, where the GDPR has been there for like four years now, but on the ground, how well has the enforcement gone? Right? Though that's also fundamentally a question of capacity. Uh, but in India, there have been many concerns about why the DPA is simply not independent enough. Uh, the, uh, the first draft of that law actually had a pretty independent committee. It had somebody from the government, it had somebody from the judiciary, you know, like across the different arms of government deciding who will head the DPA, who, what its composition will be. But the latest draft actually just makes it, again, a completely executive call. It's something that only individuals can make, uh, that only the government um, and bureaucrats and ministers will decide who sets up the DPA. And if you combine this with the first point around, they can also exclude themselves from any aspect of the law. Many in, uh, uh, individuals in India have said that, like, while it'll be good for companies, it won't change anything on the ground when it comes to the uh, citizen or the residents' uh, interaction with the government. Um, and that's something that like um, is pretty concerning. Uh, and I think that the third issue, definitely in terms of like it being an inflection point, is the issue of data localization. So India's data protection law contains both the drafts and the new one as well contains some pretty strong language that split data into three categories. Uh, there's personal data, there's sensitive personal data, and then there's critical personal data. Mm -hmm. Critical personal data isn't defined. It's something that the government will be able to notify. For example, they can say health data is critical. They can say that. Um, and in these three classifications, uh, critical data will have to stay in the country and simply cannot leave the country. Sensitive data can leave the country for a short amount of time, but a copy of that data must always be kept in the country. And personal data can currently uh, go around when it wants to. So as you can imagine, this uh, fundamentally like rejigs the way the internet and its infrastructure works uh, in a very big way. Um, we've already experienced this in India, where the Reserve Bank of India already had similar requirements for financial providers for um, almost two and a half years now. And 
both MasterCard and American Express were told to stop onboarding new customers until they comply with those data localization provisions earlier this year and late last year. So, um, because they didn't uh, meet the audit requirements that the RBI had to say that they're actually following this mirroring of sensitive data like concept and then eventually it only being in the country. So that's something that the law, data protection law, creates in general as an obligation. And as you can imagine, to give you an example, your gender identity is sensitive personal data, right? Like imagine you create a profile on Facebook and you type in your gender identity as they them, hypothetically, mm. right? Mm. When you do that, the what is Facebook supposed to do? Like that they can store that, like they can show store other pieces of information anywhere in the world, but that particular field, they will have to like take as a copy and, you know, like put in India because they want to comply with the law. Technically, photographs sometimes can be thought of as biometric information because they contain people's faces. So does that mean every photo is sensitive or does it have to be mirrored here? So you can imagine like there are just lots of Hmm. implementation details that the law can't really provide because it'll become too granular that have to be figured out. But data localization is definitely something that a lot of folks um, have been worrying about a fair bit, uh, both in the industry, but also from civil society, because um, it's much easier to gain access to a lot of this data once it's actually physically located in your uh, country from a law enforcement access perspective as well. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that like, I think the second draft of the law improved it. The first draft didn't even have, like just said data localization will have to happen, but this classification and all of that has actually come in the second draft. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in, the third, uh, uh, in the third draft that we will hopefully see next month here in India. Uh, yeah, so those are the three points. And then I'm happy to go into non-personal data now if that will be helpful. Great. Um, so when it comes to non-personal data in general, uh, non-personal data is actually like, uh, it's it has a negative definition, which is anything that isn't personal data is non-personal data. So all privacy laws and data protection laws around the world fundamentally apply to personal data, right? Like data that identifies an individual or has identifying characteristics So, for example, if I write a poem, right, like on a piece of paper or on Google Docs, um, and uh, I don't write any my my name on it, I don't associate it with an account, then that is actually, is it data? Yes. Is it personal data? No. Right? Like, because, um, for example, Mm. imagine Amazon has the list of uh, the top 100 products that are sold in India every day right? Without who bought them, without any other information, just a pure list of 100 products, top 100 products that are sold in India every day. That is an example of non-personal data. It is data. It has, it has It's useful. It has inferences associated with it, but it, it doesn't meet the uh, definition of personal data, which means it doesn't have identifying characteristics, can't be used to identify individuals, so on and so forth. Um, and India has been thinking about regulating non-personal data for some time. So India doesn't have a non-personal data law yet. Um, But India is definitely uh, thinking about regulating non-personal data because according to India, uh, and there have been reports that have been put out by government committees that have said this, is that non-personal data is one of the biggest ways in which large platforms like have, there's a big power imbalance between themselves and not just their users, but also other smaller competitors and players, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A very common example that's always used for non-personal data is this idea that Uh, Why is Google Maps as popular as it is um, all around the world? It's because of the number of users that have Android and how their location 
history within Android and the rate at which they move through roads allows Google to give far more accurate traffic predictions than even like sometimes municipalities can because even they don't monitor their own um, data flows in uh, like they, they don't mo- monitor their traffic flows in a way that uh, Google mm. essentially can do. Mm. Uh, in that, those aggregated traffic insights on Google Maps is an example of non-personal data as well. Uh, and uh, in India, what the government's been saying is that for certain kinds of non-personal data, there should be mandatory sharing, which means that if there is, if a regulator says share, say, traffic insights from the city of Surat in India with the municipal corporation of Surat for the next two years so that they can decide how to plan roads better, then operators of that service will have to do that, whether it's Google, whether it's Map by India, no matter who it is. Um, and you can imagine that like this has the large technology platforms pretty worried, right? Because what this does is it's explicitly taking something that they use as a competitive advantage, insights and aggregated information about what's mm. happening on the platform, and then gives it to uh, sometimes competitors, sometimes the government itself, and um, and therefore are quite worried about it. Uh, we as Mozilla also uh, on non-personal data, while we agree with the broader idea behind why it's important to readdress this power imbalance, also think that the way in which it's currently being discussed is pretty limiting. Um, the reports, for example, because we don't have a law yet that talk about non-personal data are very, very vague, create new concepts like community data that allow for communities or collectives of people to ask for their data, but actually empower the government to ask it on behalf of those communities um, have very, very vaguely defined privacy and security protections because, I mean, there is a lot of history around the world in how um, personal data should be protected, right? Because personal data means the identifying characteristics in it that are personal. But for non-personal data, like it's much harder to imagine how how can you make something that doesn't have any identify like mm. privacy identifying characteristics even more secure. But uh, and then there are also additional and this is the final point uh, risks on non-personal data around group privacy as well, which is um, essentially let's just take that earlier example right of that Amazon in the list of top hundred products. Now let's just imagine that alongside those top hundred products, we also know the pin codes to which they are delivered. You will now be able, just on the basis of what those common products are, be able to know much more about the people that live in those localities than what you would if you didn't have that information, right? Like, so for example, um, is one of the top 100 products sold um, a religious text? And does it mean that it only goes to certain PIN codes? And does that mean that those PIN codes are people of that particular religious, like, you know, belief or faith? Um, does the fact that a particular PIN code is buying more books of, that are critical of the government than other PIN codes mean something about the people who live in those localities uh, on the ground? And does that mean that the government should surveil them more? Right? Like all of these are aspects in which even at an aggregated level, there are you can draw very, very personal and deep inferences about the groups of people who live in those areas and, and in those localities. And the law doesn't really account for those privacy get all secure like characteristics at all. It doesn't say what what like it doesn't say you should be penalized if you exploit those sensitive characteristics. For example, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't say like what will like uh, what you should do to prevent that from happening in the first place. So uh, while the idea is an interesting one, um, it's currently pretty half baked uh, and is quite far away from implementation. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this uh, in the context of the data protection bill is that there are rumors that this bill 
will the new draft, the third draft, will actually make most provisions apply both to personal and to non-personal okay. data. So that okay. it won't necessarily be a personal data protection bill. That will just become a data protection bill. And then a lot of these provisions around sharing and things like that will uh, start applying like far earlier than most people. Most people in India expected a separate law on non-personal data. There was wording around non-personal data in the previous bill, the mm, 2019 mm. draft, but it was just one small section that said the government can make rules about. It was just an enabling provision. So this bill may be quite different on that. Okay, so that's quite scary. So um, my question is that, is there any way or um, that it can, like there can be a proposed change or if there can be a change to this law, what's like your wish list or ideal situation that, you know, how should a data protection law in India look like? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, realistically speaking, I think that time in India has now passed. Uh, between 2018 to um, like late 2019 almost, uh, the government did a bunch of public consultations, put out drafts mm. of the laws, did meetings. So at least from the views of the people passing the law, that phase, phase is done. Um, but one, uh, but that law has actually changed a lot from okay. those phases to what now we're actually going mm. to see now. So uh, is there merit in asking for another consultation? Yes, I think that there is. Um, will it happen in practice? Extraordinarily unlikely. Because by that ta- by that logic, everyone could always just keep asking for extension, like, mm. you know, consultations mm. and law. Um, and it has been about uh, three years since the law sh- should have been passed and hasn't been passed yet. So that, that's definitely something that I think folks in the government uh, know about as well. Uh, in terms of a wish list, uh, I would definitely say like a couple of things. One, uh, making sure that uh, that blanket power that's there to the government to exempt itself from any part of the law goes away, that it should become one. That it's, it's definitely okay for there to be exemptions to the law applying to the government. All data protection laws have that, but they need to be narrowly defined. Uh, there is a standard called um, it, they, that it should be necessary and proportionate. Um, and therefore, those exemptions should be limited, narrow, only for the specific use case. I really have independent oversight of when those exceptions are applied and so on and so forth. Uh, the second would be to definitely um, bring back the independence of the data protection authority. So make sure that the individuals who appoint the data protection committee, or like chief data protection commissioner and the rest of the committee are like independent and aren't just people from the government. Um, the third would be that remove uh, things that don't have anything to do with data protection from the law, right? Um, mm. Because uh, like uh, I that non-personal data point that I just told you is just one example. There are some rumors that this data protection law will declare social media companies as publishers of content that are posted on their platforms, right? Uh, which will completely take away safe harbor that they enjoy and is fundamental to how they operate. Um, that has nothing to do with data protection. And it, like the data protection law shouldn't be looked at as, you know, the, the closest thing that we have to a new tech law coming. So let's just put everything that we want sort of there. So, um, because that will just make its scope too broad, it will be subjected to more challenges and it just is not a very effective way, I think, to go about coming up with with the privacy legislation. Um, And finally, uh, is definitely like watering down some of the provisions around data localization as well, because uh, it's very unclear what the policy objectives around data localization are. If they are to increase more data centers in India, if it's to build Indian capacity, there are much better ways to do that than to actually require physical data be stored in your country. And um, the free flow of data in that way is definitely something that's pretty important. 
uh, as well and, and, and is one that Mozilla has always supported as well. So yeah, that's a short list of the things that the law could do better. Okay, that, that clarifies a lot of things actually for me. Um, I think my next something that, you know, I'm really curious about is like how big tech um, behaves in India, you know, and it's and how they deal with um, their platforms when it comes to India, which is which seems to be a little different than how they behave in, in <laughs> you know, globally. And um, recently there have been journalists and media reports that, you know, um, certain kind of tweets or certain kind of uh, social media posts end up uh, being either hidden or removed um, due to uh, XYZ reason. So I, I think it would be interesting to understand that is it, does it have something to do with the way data regulations are in India or does it have something to do with um you know the uh, the structure of of big tech that it can just uh, operate differently in each country. Um, I'm happy to answer that. Uh, in India, essentially, the regime that governs the examples that you like mentioned, which are essentially examples of content, are all things that in India at least don't fall within data or data protection regulations. They fall within uh, what is known as intermediary liability. So under the IT Act, which is the Information Technology Act in India, there are rules that have been framed, um, were first framed all the way back in 2011 and just got updated in Feb this year, that actually say if you are to avail safe harbor, which is that if you are a platform and you don't want to be held liable for content on your platform, mm -hmm. you need to follow certain due diligence obligations, which means that you need to do like, you know, these 10 things if you want to claim safe harbor, uh, like, and, and not be held liable. One of those things is that if a government, uh, there's a committee that's been appointed under the IT Act uh, by the Indian government, if that committee tells you to take a piece of content down and the criteria by which the committee can do that are the same as those in the Constitution of India, you know, friendly relations with other states, public order, uh, national security, like broad headings, mm -hmm. um, then you have to comply with that. So in India, the regulations like largely states that if this committee gives you a request and you don't comply with it, you are violating Indian law. And therefore, you can also be held liable for the harm that is caused by that particular piece of content. At least that's the reasoning that the uh, government uses in those conversations as well. So if you have a request from that committee to say a piece of content down, take a piece of content down. I mean, you can clarify, you can ask questions, you can push back a little, but ultimately you need to do it. Because if you don't, you like they can file a case in court against you saying that this video went viral. Because of that video going viral, X people died. And the people responsible for it are the person who uploaded the video, but also the platform that led to this video being propagated at the rate at which it did. And no platform really wants that to happen, right? Because they have... Uh, even in India, like hundreds of millions of minutes of content that are uploaded every single day. It's impossible for them to see every piece of content, make a judgment or decision on whether it's good or not, and then let it come online. And um, that framework has been tightened very strongly in the 2021 rules. Uh, mm. The platforms are required to appoint local compliance officers uh, who essentially, you know, if the government like 
doesn't like doesn't like the fact that like mm-hmm. you haven't taken a piece of content down. They are the ones who are almost personally liable for it. Um, and the law also says that even criminal provisions can possibly apply on them uh, for refusing to act upon government requests. Um, yeah, but that's true for all countries, right? So and big uh, tech. Oh uh, no. Most no. countries in the world actually don't have an uh, intermediary liability law at all. Okay. Uh, the few countries that do have, and by few I mean like there are probably 50, 60, but it's lesser. Like, I mean, out of the 200 countries, only like yeah, 50, yeah. 60 of them. Uh, and even the ones that they do, for example, in America, it's called Section 230 of the Communications mm. Decency Act. That is the basis of intermediary liability. And uh, uh, there it isn't limited in any way at all. So um, you are not liable for content that is on your platform, apart mm. from like, I think, child sexual abuse materials, um, uh, human trafficking, and like one other pretty narrow exception around copyright um, as well. Apart from those instances, platforms aren't liable for actions that they take that take place on their platforms. In Europe, uh, there is what used to be called the e-commerce directive, now is being sort of uh, ex- radically expanded in the Digital Services Act also contain similar provisions around liability for platforms and they also contain due diligence obligations, but they aren't required. Like there are no criminal sanctions that can apply to individual members of those companies if um, they don't comply with government requests. So the list of countries that actually have laws that do things like this is uh, is India, Turkey, China, like those are the countries that usually tend to like um, impose criminal liability upon companies that operate in their country. Uh, in order to be able to force content takedowns. I mean, it's crazy because, you know, it's the world's largest democracy and it has so many voices. And how many internet users do we ha- uh, does India have? I mean, I mean, I think it's, would, by now, by the end of 2021, I'd be surprised if it's not more than 700 to 800 million. Million, right? Okay. And, and it's... Um, it's like a little disappointing to know that it's backward when it comes to, um, you know, democratic voice on, on the internet. And, um, okay, <laughs> let's see, you keep doing the work you do and then we see from where, how it goes. Uh, I'm also interested to know, um, you know, a lot of these problems with user-generated uh, data, privacy, etc. come because we are in web 2 and there's a lot of noise around you know web 3 and decentralization and own your data and um you know that's the solution to whatever problems we are facing right now what are your views um i don't know whether you want to associate it to mozilla or you know talk about personally what you feel about it but how do you think web 3 and decentralization can solve these problems and how far are we from from that like, I mean, uh, I'll definitely give my personal opinion because I don't think that Mozilla has ever really like spoken uh, exhaustively on its views on mm-hmm. Web3 in the past. Like, like, that's very much, I think, uh, something that, yeah, at least in my memory has not happened. But my personal viewpoint is I think that like in general, the idea of decentralization uh, is a pretty powerful one, right? Um, I think that like, especially in the social media sector, uh, it depends on how one chooses to define decentralization in the first place. Uh, uh, there are, of course, platforms like um, like Mastodon and a couple of other things that like bring in principles of decentralization without necessarily relying on like, you know, what would you traditionally look at as Web3 technologies such as blockchain and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, and some of them have been pretty successful. But, I, uh, but in general, I think when it comes to like, 
the problems of both content moderation, which is everything around content, and as well as like data protection. Um, right now, there is often in certain areas, especially here in India, some like uh, hype by certain players, sometimes in the private sector and also sometimes in the government that doesn't hasn't at least in practice on the ground necessarily added up to the benefits that uh, they would claim it would bring, right? Like just to give you an example, there have been some pretty interesting projects that have been run in states in India around, you know, like land registration and you, the usage of like decentralized, uh, like DLT technology in order to be able to like pull some mm-hmm. of those things off. Um, and uh, what's in practice ended up happening is that like they have been built, they have been set up, but simply because the rest of the ecosystem around it doesn't exist and there aren't enough like people even within the government who can use it effectively, it's uh, in practice, it's really acting like a glorified Excel sheet when its potential probably could be much more. Um, so which is why I, I definitely think that, I mean, that there is something to the Web3 idea. Uh, it's not that I think I definitely don't think like all of it is complete hype uh, or, or none of it is true. But I do think that in terms of practical, demonstrable use cases that showcase that value exist, but those that exist are actually spoken about far lesser than some the upper layer of hype that sometimes exists around some of these um, ideas. And in India on the ground, I think that uh, we're quite far away, I think, from like seeing it being deployed in the way that I think it, it probably will be much earlier in many other countries. And that's much more to do with, you know, um, the availability of technology, like other things that you need in order to be used, to be able to use technologies like that well and effectively and, and, and locally. Uh, but it's, it's a journey that I'm like excited to watch and, and definitely one that I think um, holds enough potential that it's one that we should take seriously. But also, we should like be more strategic about making sure that when we do talk about it and when we talk about the proposals uh, within it, that they mm. put its best foot forward in terms of both use cases as well as solutions. Because like, those definitely exist. It's yeah. just they aren't spoken about as much. I think cryptocurrencies being one of the use cases that's actually being spoken a lot about and yeah. popular or for, I don't know, the right reasons or the wrong reasons. But... Th- I don't think India is very open to that at at this point. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there have been some rumors that, uh, uh, again, in this new session of parliament that's about to come up in two weeks uh, Mm -hmm. from now, that that they are going to table a bill uh, on cryptocurrencies in India. uh, The Reserve Bank of India did pass some directions, but they like on banning them in India, but then the Supreme Court of India struck them down. And here, uh, uh, this law apparently is going to attempt to regulate them quite strongly as well. And there's a lot of, I mean, there are lots of rumors. Uh, one of the ways that which the law has been defined is that it's going to uh, ban private currencies. Right? And folks don't really know what that means, whether it means all cryptocurrency does just mean uh, cryptocurrencies will be regulated before they have to be like, you know, sold or dealt with in India. But um, that's also going to happen. So. It's going to be a pretty interesting time for cryptocurrency enthusiasts uh, in the yeah, next month, month yeah. and a half. No, I follow that actually quite closely on Twitter. And, um, you know, Nishal from Vazirax and all these people. So it's quite, it's interesting how they have like this huge community uh, getting together. And, you know, they are um, really crypto believers. Um, and yeah, let's see how it goes. So I think we are already running out of time, but um, is there anything specific that you would want me to touch upon that probably I've missed or? Uh, I mean, I think 
in general, uh, and this is definitely a thread that will go through everything we've discussed, which is mm-hmm. the uh, there's cryptocurrency, there's content regulation, there's data. Uh, India, in many ways, is trying to sort of, you know, like what, uh, and some people have now openly said it, is is very much trying to carve what it calls is the fourth path of internet regulation. They think that the three main dominant models are the models of the United States with free market, very little regulation, Europe, pretty strong prescriptive regulation, and regulation in countries like China that defers much more to the power of the state. Um, and I think India, in all of the issues that we have discussed, is trying to sort of like pick and choose you know, different models from these different countries uh, in order to be able to sort of implement them in practice. And I think it's a uh, it's it's a trend that is only going to increase. Like I think data protection and content regulation is are just what we're talking about now. Like there will be competition soon. There will be like many other issues. Mm-hmm. And India is going to like, I think, broadly follow a similar trajectory. And it's one that like, I think um, is very deliberately doing so to also set an example for other similarly placed countries. So it's not just what do we do here, but it's also, how do we do things in a manner that other countries go, hey, this is interesting. We should also uh, follow it or emulate it. So that's, I think, uh, a pretty interesting concept. Yeah. Okay. That's a nice way to put it. And if you had to leave one takeaway from today's interaction that we've had, what would that be just as a closing note that, you know, just this is what you take away from this episode? Uh, I mean, it would definitely be that uh, I think that many countries in the world are active on technology regulation, but I really think very few are as active as India is right now in terms of the number of issues that are happening at the same time. Um, I think that uh, there are some organizations that definitely monitor them and track them to the extent that it should. But uh, there are many, many things that are happening in India first. Uh, that aren't like before they are happening in other places in terms of how laws are shaping out. And I think that the global engagement that requires either to prevent that because they may be Mm. bad ideas or to learn from them so that they can be done better somewhere else um, is definitely something that that really does need to take place. So I would would just encourage folks to like try to see like and follow to the extent possible what's happening in India more closely because some of it is not just very, very interesting, but is major surprise many people by becoming global, just being the the initial signs of what will eventually become a global trend. Yeah, no, that's true. And all these big tech companies know that, you know, that they can't ignore India. And and that's why they go so big on India and all VCs and private equity and everybody goes uh, big on India because if you have to be global, you need to understand the most complicated market in the world and you know, that's India. So, um, and thank you for giving us insights into what's happening in data regulation in India and coming to Voices of Data Economy. And hopefully we will see you in Berlin soon and <laughs> catch up then. So thank you, Udbhav. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.